Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. We were in survival mode and it wasn't about prospering at that stage. It was purely about survival. Flight Centre has been an undisputed homegrown Australian success story since he co-founded it with a couple of mates 38 years ago from one single shop. Graham Screw Turner, as he likes to be known, has built it into one of the largest travel businesses ever created in this country, operating in 24 countries, including the massive US and UK markets, with tens of thousands of employees writing tens of billions of dollars worth of travel sales. And that was his second empire. He'd begun top-deck travel bus tours a decade before Flight Centre as a mere 24-year-old. Turner made himself and his co-founders very rich along the five-decade journey with pretty constant appearances on the AFR and Forbes rich lists. Well, that was up until March this year. And in today's episode, Screw Turner talks candidly of how COVID-19 dramatically upended the Flight Centre universe almost overnight. He tells how he and his leadership team had to make gut-wrenching decisions like standing down two-thirds of his 20,000-strong workforce just to survive when bookings and travel revenue simply fell off a cliff. Graham Turner, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Uh, no worries, Helen. Thanks for inviting me on and uh, please call me Screw. Oh, really? Is that like everybody else calls you Screw? Yes, um, only for about the last uh, probably 60 years, actually, <laughs> 55 years. <laughs> Just briefly, where does it come from, the nickname? Oh, it's a pretty simple thing. It uh there used to be, when I went to boarding school when I was 15, there was a Turner screwdriver, which is quite a well-known brand. My name's Turner. There was already a housemaster at school called um, Turner, and he was called Screwdriver. So I got the shortened version. Oh, love it. Screw. Now, if we were talking in February 2020, so just, what, three months ago, and I asked you for a snapshot of Flight Centre Travel Group, you would tell me, you know, it's one of the biggest travel businesses ever produced by Australia. It has some 20,000 staff globally. You're writing over $20 billion, I think, in travel sales a year. You have at least a 1,000 shops in over 25 countries across four major regions, 50% of your total sales, as I understand it, come from outside Australia. So what's happened to that snapshot? Give us a picture of Flight Centre right now. That's an interesting one to think about. Now, I think we're in 24 countries. It might be 25. Uh, we're still there. We haven't pulled out of any countries, but our staff numbers are down to about uh, from uh, over 20,000 to around the 6,000 mark. Our sales uh, in <clears throat> about half our sales are leisure and it's 97% down and corporates about 85, 90% down. So, yeah, it's changed uh, significantly and obviously um, 
the losses that we're accumulating are quite significant uh, on a month-by-month basis. That's just extraordinary. When was the moment, let's start with the moment it, it hit you that this is bad? Because obviously being in the travel industry, you'd heard uh, information coming out of China. You probably thought, oh, well, China might fall this uh, in the next little while. But when did it really hit you that this is bad for your business? I think it was the 16th of March. I'd actually just arrived back from London Thursday morning, 12th of March, and I'd been in London about five days for some meetings there. My actually daughter with her um, young child and partner lived in London at the time. Yeah, March 15 was the Sunday night. Oh, was it? Okay, March 15. Yeah. Yeah, I got back on the 12th of March. Everything was pretty pretty good. You know, London was packed with tourists, particularly along the South Bank where uh, where our unit is. Yeah, came back to Australia, thought, well, you know, it's, 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 it's not great in some places. Our businesses in Asia and China were, were suffering quite badly. Then there were a couple of pronouncements. I think Trump announced no more European flights into the States and uh, Morrison then basically banned travel uh, I think that was late on that weekend or early mm. the next week. So uh, we knew immediately that we were going to be in trouble and uh, whatever modelling we did, uh, we knew we'd need much more cash, much longer runway of cash. And uh, we got onto it from that Monday morning straight away and that was basically about three weeks from then of long days and mm. uh, weekends and uh, working to... Uh, raise capital and um, and and loans. We will go into a, a fair bit of that detail because I think it's really instructive to other businesses how you manage, how you build resilience and survivability into a business. But can you paint us a picture of then how the nightmare, I guess it was, certainly for those three weeks, unfolded? How scary it was, how fast moving, and how you made decisions. And so rapidly made decisions to try to save the business, slash costs, prop up and boost your liquidity. Well, I think the first thing was we all accepted, I have a leadership team, there's seven of us and obviously we've got our board, which uh, there's four independents on our board. And the seven of us, we, we call it the task force. Uh, we have the CEO of a global CEO of Leisure, Mel Waters Ryan, global CEO of Corporate, which is Chris Galanti, who's based in the UK, and then we have the major regional MDs, uh, Australia, EMEA, and uh, the North America. So uh, we, we were talking to each other twice a day, including weekends for the first couple of weeks, just to work out how we would save money. And I think the first thing that we really accepted as a team that we were in survival mode and it wasn't about prospering at that stage. It was purely about survival. And we realised, I think everyone realised that in each country, each region, that we're in a, uh, a race for survival, not not necessarily in the short term. We, we, we had cash to see us through perhaps for six or eight months at the time. But, yeah, what well, uh, you we, had over a billion dollars in cash, but I guess did it strike you fairly early on that that actually wasn't going to last you that long? 
No, we, our, our costs were running at the time uh, about 225, 230 million Australian dollars a month. A month? A month. And, uh, you know, we, we obviously didn't have, there, there was not much likelihood of much income at all. Obviously, a lot of cash going out, not just in expenses, but in client funds. So, you know, it was pretty obvious that we, we had six or eight months, uh, assuming we could cut our costs quite dramatically. Um, and, uh, that's when we realized, we realized very quickly that we would need to raise capital. Uh, there was going to be no, um, no doubt about that. And uh, so we set about talking to uh, various people on that. Mm. How? Give us an overall picture. You have this task force of seven. You obviously have worked really well together as a leadership team. You've been through a number of crises before in terms of world crises, SARS, 9-11, etc. But this was so different. How did it actually work decision-making? Did you make all the decisions or do you say, Joe Blow in Europe, you have to work out what's going on there and, and you tell us what you're doing, but you make the decisions? Uh, look, it is a, it's a combination and it depends on what speciality different people have. Mm. As I said, Mel and Chris run uh, leisure and corporate globally, and Adam, our CFO, runs the shared services globally. So uh, it depends on which, er- which mm. area it was, but generally for the overall uh, strategy, you know, for example, capital raising and, and cost reduction, it was fairly um, consensus driven. We, mm. we generally, uh, generally agreed, unless it was someone's specialization, uh, for example, Adam, in terms of you know, the numbers and, and the finance, um, him and his team would, you know, would produce the numbers and, uh, we generally accept and understand what, uh, what we needed to do from an operational and, and a strategic point of view as well. You say very early on, really, you accepted that this was purely a fight for survival, nothing to do with prospering, which of course is what drives publicly listed companies most of the time. How scary a time was it, at least for a while? Um, It's a good question. I I suppose having been um, in this business for a long time and uh, we started Top Deck Travel in 1973 and uh, Flight Centre in um, 1982. So, you know, I had a lot of, uh, I've had a lot of experience and most of my team have been there for at least, I think the shortest was 15 years, but most of them have been in flight center for between 20 and 32 years. So, you know, it's, I, I suppose the overall sense, but of running a business and having run businesses for a long time, uh, you know, really top deck and flight center that Running a business with virtually no income, starting off with 225 million of expenses, is is quite an uh, unusual feeling. You know, it's sort of mm. it goes against everything that you've done for the last you know 47 years in terms of what running a business is all about. Mm. So that that was quite a strange feeling. But um, you know, being a public company, we're used to challenges. But this was um, far exceed anything we've obviously had before. But 
I, I suppose that level of experience does prepare you to as much as you can be prepared for this sort of thing. $230 million in expenses every month with no income coming in. I mean, what sort of devastating impact is that on your company, particularly for March and April? Look, I mean, it's it means you have big losses, huge losses. You have to make some dramatic decisions in terms of cutting expenses. And, and, and unfortunately, um, you know, in a business like ours, it's very – very people intensive, so a lot of the expenses come down to uh, standing down people, and then, mm. you know a lot of these are people who've been with us for years, very successful, contribute a huge amount to our organisation, but um, you know we just had no no alternative to, to that. Mm. Obviously, we had I think we had nearly two thousand locations in leisure, uh, which we basically have more than or pretty much halved those numbers and, uh, you know, cut the marketing to basically zero, going dark on marketing almost overnight. So, you know, those were some of the really major mm. things we had to do. And uh, unfortunately, the people one is the hardest one and it's, uh, it's uh, the saddest one because, uh, you know, obviously even as we come out of this over the next 6, 12, 18 months, two years, there's going to be a significant number of people that um, – won't be won't be coming back either. Mm. Hopefully they've got another job, but also because we're just not going to be the same size yeah. in two years' time as we were. We'll talk about that future in a little while. But I mean, what you're saying is, you know, how tough was it for you to make those drastic, but also those difficult decisions to stand down thousands of employees? You were out of the out of the gates fairly quickly with that. To close down shops, some forever. To sell your Melbourne head office building. To dump the dividend for shareholders. You did it, I guess, with your this leadership team of seven. Did you also have your other two co-founders? They're significant shareholders, but they don't run the business. Did your wife help you? Did you have a bunch of lawyers and investment bankers? Or is it, in the end, fairly solitary? No, look, I think um, we had a, the leadership teams in each region were basically given the budgets that we needed to get to and the costs we needed to get down to it so that the basically the nitty-gritty of actions were, was done by them and um, you know in the end we and they had no alternative you know it was so mm. although it was really difficult and you you talk to some of the people who um, you know for example in Australian leisure uh, I think we went from six and a half thousand to um, to, to under two thousand to about two thousand, you know, it's a mm. huge number of people. And these so are so sorry, these are the people who are in your storefronts in you know every high street and a lot of shopping malls in Australia. Yes, generally, and, and in and some in head office, right, as well. Uh, and and bear in mind, they're, they're people that they're not. Very few of them are kids, you know, uh, in their early twenties. Most of them are. Family people mm. with with kids and um, and mortgages being stood down even on JobKeeper and that it's um, it, you know it's a significant decrease in their income immediately and, and looking into the future that you know for for a significant proportion it, it, it'll be quite a grey future for for some time. 
So as a business leader, uh, was this the hardest part or what was the hardest part about managing the crisis through March and April as, you know, the travel restrictions, business in general, all shuts down, fear about the virus that all really took hold in our community? Look, definitely the people side of it was was the toughest part, not directly for me because I wasn't directly involved in, in many of those stand downs, but you, you don't have to think too deeply about it to understand the impact it has on thousands of people's lives. So um, that that was definitely the the toughest thing when when you th- when you thought about it. A lot of other things, you know, having the network of shops were built up uh, around the world. Uh, for example, in leisure, having to halve that overnight and realise that. You know, a lot of these locations uh, that we close are, are never going to come back. Um, no, even if, even if with the revival of travel and that, we 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 manage to grow quite successfully in the future. The fact that we've spent you know thirty seven or thirty um, eight years building up this network and um, overnight it's it gets hard. So yeah, you know, those sort of things are not not easy. But that's business. You know, you, uh, unfortunately. Or fortunately, business is business. Uh, it's no use uh, crying over spilt milk. There are certain things you just got to do, and uh, it, there was we had we knew we had no alternative. It, it, it is about what you're rebuilding for the future, mm, really. Mm. So, really, as a leader, you just have to go into that mode of making tough decisions, but to ensure your future sustainability, viability, profitability at some point in the future. Exactly. And, and, you know, I'm fairly philosophical about what business is about. You know, it's, it is about people and it is about in, enjoying it uh, rather than it, if it becomes hard work. To me, that's that's not what business is about. Business is something that humans effectively have created, um, and it's got certain artificial rules around it. And you just got to accept that it's not exactly life and death. It's very important to a lot of people, obviously, for their livelihoods. But business, you know, business after all is business. It's not it, it's, it's not a war. It's it's, mm. it's something that you've got to make work. Mm. That's a really interesting perspective. We might explore that a little bit later. So basically, international travel, domestic travel, revenue completely fell off a cliff. Was it a near-death experience? Well, certainly not yet. Um, (laughs) In March and April? Well, we were pretty confident from the start that we'd be able to raise sufficient capital to to have a – you know, they talk about having a cash runway of uh, somewhere between 18 months and two years. So um, I, I don't think we ever got to the stage where we thought that didn't think we would be able to survive, even though, you know, for some period of time, it, it, we were working for our survival. But I don't think we ever thought it, it wouldn't work out. So um, that's... So I wouldn't call it a near-death experience at this stage anyway. Mm. Even in more recent weeks, we're now sort of mid-June, have you actually had anything to sell or what have your staff been doing, the staff that have been working? Look, most most of our activity for the last two months has been focused on refunding wow. clients. Uh, and the, the way it works uh, – 
generally the operators cancel tours for the next or, or flights and that for the next couple of months. So we work on those next two months when they're cancelled to um, to refund the clients as they come in. Obviously, people can put their the funds on credit if they want to. There's some benefits to do that as well for future travel. But uh, so that's really what they've been doing for the last two months. Those people that are left uh, in in the job and and in the locations and that and in head office. Wow, that's starting to change now as we're getting. We're getting a good handle on the refund situation and, and inquiry is starting to come in. But uh, Inquiries you know, for travel? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that just domestic? Look, it's it's more domestic now, but people are inquiring about next year. You know, people have, particularly in Australia, they have this in, insatiable desire to travel at some <laughs> yeah. stage. And, and uh, so we are getting reasonable inquiry for next year, but – Still, relatively small business. It's it's the same as anything. You know, we need certainty. We need to know the Australian all the Australian borders are open. The carriers, Qantas and Virgin in particular, are flying, and then there will be a rush in that. You know, we've seen it in in other parts of the business as well. That uh, as soon as people have that certainty. They will be out there uh, booking and, and spending money. Yeah, with the refund screw, can you just clear up? Because obviously, a lot of people have been, you know, worried and wondering about this over the past few months. I know you've put out a number of statements. Is it say flight centre, or is it the airlines holding people's money for fares? Look, it, it, it will be both. It'll be the operators and airlines who are holding money in the longer term. In the shorter term, generally, we will have been refunded. And, and it's, you know, bear in mind, we had something like 250,000 uh, files mm. on our books when the, when we start to refund. And we, but we only had 30% of our people here to actually work it. Right. So uh, we'll admit that in the first month or six weeks, our systems just weren't good enough, um, you know, to, to do it efficiently enough. So, uh, we were certainly to blame for some of that. We, we've sorted mm. that out over the last uh, month or six weeks. I think in the last month we've been getting through twenty or thirty thousand refunds a week. So, you know, it, it is still a, a matter of timing. But generally, most of the um, airlines and tour operators and cruise lines, certainly for the for the one for the travel for the next couple of months, generally have been pretty good at at uh, sending the refund back. Bear in mind, you know, also there's quite a few clients that have three or four different operators and hotels, so it is quite complex. What's your best prognosis now for, well, domestic has started, but international travel? Yeah, look, domestic really hasn't started, you know, totally at the moment. We, We think that'll probably start Fairly early July, when the airlines are starting to ramp up capacity, that yeah. there's clearly the opportunity for um, the general public to start travelling domestically, which is not really the case. It's still mainly essential ah, uh, right. yep. people. Internationally, there's been a fair bit of talk, and you will have seen it, that New Zealand yes. probably will open up probably in August, hopefully early August. So what, this trans-Tasman bubble or...? Yeah, I don't know whether it'll be a bubble. It'll it'll be a bilateral arrangement for the first six or nine months 
between various countries, you know, Australia and New Zealand and, and perhaps some other countries like, you know, maybe Vietnam, Singapore, uh, Taiwan. Okay. And where where they're, they're, they have probably similar levels of infection or very low levels of infection and, um, and gradually it'll expand um, over the next six to nine months. And it'll, it'll be at least 12 months probably be, before international travel as we knew it is even really seriously starting to come back, we think. Mm. In the midst of the crisis, you also had to deal with considerable backlash and what turned into a bit of a PR disaster for charging your $300 cancellation fee. Now, you, you did fairly quickly reverse that. In hindsight, could you have handled that better? And what did you learn from that? Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm sure. Basically, we have a $300 cancellation fee. In the very in the early stages when this came on, we were fairly uh, strict in the way we enforced it. What what really happened that where we went too far, and and we do regret this, I think, was where the actual operator cancelled and. Um, yeah, you know, we, obviously we've still done a lot of work for the, on behalf of the clients and the operator. You know, in respect for people generally and the customers in particular, uh, it just doesn't seem fair that um, they get charged if uh, if the actual flight or the um, cruise or whatever is not actually happening. So, yeah, there there were some lessons there. And um, what's the biggest lesson? I think we took too short a view of of it and it was you know when you looked at it and when we really thought about it in terms of preserving cash which is all important to us then that we when we needed the cash it'd probably be in 18 months to two years time and this was all going to be resolved totally well before that so it wasn't really the issue wasn't short-term cash you know it was long-term cash if this goes on long enough, but also our reputation, Mm. which uh, is and was very important to us. Okay, it was a crisis. We've got a lot of um, reasons why we charge a cancellation fee, but in the end, uh, yeah, I I think the the reputational damage and and that is is not worth that sort of thing, particularly when the, the cash benefits to us, as I say, when we might need that cash, was so far down the track, it would have all been resolved before that anyway. I just want to go back to something you talked about, about the, you know, the staff part being the hardest, the people part. Of course, as leader of a publicly listed company, you must be truthful to the market, to shareholders, but you also want to be positive and say, you know, we'll come out of this, we'll get through this. Nonetheless, it's thousands of people's lives, your staff, that you're dealing with, asking them to make big sacrifices, standing them down. How do you deal with that and be true to a responsibility to them? Yeah, it it, it is interesting because one of the problems is no matter how much modelling we do, the restrictions that we live by are not caused directly by the coronavirus. It's, it's, it's caused artificially by government restrictions, which, you know, they're, they're doing the best in what they think is, is good for the health of the nation, that sort of thing. And not just in Australia, but that's everywhere. 
And I think one of our one of the real problems with being able to be very um, transparent to the market or to our own people on what the timeline is going to be, you know, for example, when people are going to come, we're going to need people back, or when our revenue is going to return, and and what the governments here, particularly the state governments, haven't been good at in Australia, for example, is not giving us definite dates. Now, okay, there's a risk because you know everyone knows. Mm. I think that there, there is going to be second, third, fourth, fifth waves. It's always happened before in pandemics; never not happened. So, the idea that it's only going to be one wave, businesses like ours and and basically all businesses need timelines to be definite as far out as possible. But you know, we're, we're still, for example, don't know when all the borders are going to be open. And um, and free flowing and uh, and it could be it could be as little as two weeks away, but we still don't know. So, you know, for for our people to be able to plan for our people to come back in when we might need them, or as to when you know domestic and domestic tourism is going to be up and running, you know, it's it's just a guessing game at the moment. So those are the things that really are, are really frustrating to this just. The lack of, uh, I suppose, particularly the states giving some definite dates when they almost certainly probably have made a decision already, I, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. I guess I was also asking about that kind of weight of responsibility on you as a leader. Does it weigh on you? That tension between, you know, being a, as great to your people as you can, but also being, you know, open and doing what the market and shareholders need you and want you to do. I, I, not really. I mean, I, I must admit, you know, we we know what we've got to do. Mm. We've, uh, and, and again, it's about surviving and, and, and later prospering. You know, if there was any alternatives, uh, it may well weigh that you might have had another alternative that that could have been easier on on the people, or but you know, particularly with the the staffing and our expenses, you know, we we just have there's no alternative. So there's it's not as if that you can do other things, or that there are other things yeah. that we could do that might have been easier on our people. You know, our main aim now is to um, as <clears throat> the borders open and initially the state borders. That we can we can get as much business as we can, so that we can start bringing people back yeah. uh, when it, when when it's busy enough. You did a capital raising. Your lenders helped you out. Do you mind me asking? Did you and your co-founders kick in any of your own money to prop up liquidity and viability? Yeah, when we did the capital raising, we raised seven hundred million, and obviously we were heavily diluted in that yeah. raising because of our share price. And we put in, um, I think I put in um, ten million dollars, bought ten million dollars worth of the raising, and yeah. uh, Jeff ten, and I think Bill five. But yeah, it's one of the. And I know someone asked me, "Well, why didn't you put in more?" Well, we do have. We all have other businesses, and I, I certainly didn't have a lot of money lying around waiting for this. You know, in other, in indeed, we um, we had a line of credit that we used for this to um, to buy. Ten million dollars worth of shares. So, yeah, that's. I guess that's that's the um, the position on that. Yeah. So, flight centre, you did access JobKeeper, didn't you? Yeah. As soon as we saw exactly what the JobKeeper was, and we were obviously eligible for it, we um, 
we immediately uh, went in, went in for that. It was obviously, um, you know, designed for yeah, companies like ours. Exactly, exactly. So just as we we think we're coming out of the worst, do you think? through this crisis, you've managed and your team to build resilience in your company and trust with your employees, your suppliers? Look, we, we've we've really tried to work, to do two things. And if you're talking about our people and our suppliers, we put a lot of effort in, and not only in Australia, but everywhere around the world to keep in touch both with our customers our suppliers, who obviously we work with and we'll be working with again to make sure that we can help them as much as we can, as well as our people. You know, we, we have um, even the people that are, well, the people, particularly the people who are stood down, we have regular communications with them. Uh, they have all access to our health-wise and money-wise uh, facilities that we've got going. So that, that aspect's been very important to us. I mean, mm. in particular, in corporate, and particularly in corporate with our corporate customers, making sure they know that we're still there, we're still thinking about them, we're still winning a lot of corporate business, which um, unfortunately they're obviously not trading at the moment mm. because no one's flying. But I think, you know, the people, the 30% of our people that are left, and particularly our leadership teams, you know, have done a great job. Uh, the, the people in the front line, you know, where there's very little product to sell and, uh, you know, their main job has been, uh, for example, refunds over the last couple of months, you know, it's almost certainly a lot a lot tougher on them because uh, at best they're busy with refunds. At worst they're uh, twiddling their thumbs, you know, and that's, yeah. that's not – they're not sort of people who like that. So how much more positive or confident are you now in what well, we're coming into the third week of June than a month or six weeks ago? When you look at North America and the state that that's in generally, particularly the states, but uh, also uh, Europe and uh, UK, Europe, particularly the UK, uh, they've, they've still got a long way to go. And, um, you know, we talk uh, most days to our people in, in the US and, and UK, mm. and um, particularly the UK, the, the, they just haven't got the benefits of being locked down, but they've been locked down for two and a half months, mm. I think. Uh, so, you know, uh, people are really starting to feel the pain of that, of that sort of thing. So from the uh, Australia-New Zealand point of view, uh, it, it is what happens when we open up to other countries who probably won't be quite as uh, infection-free as we will be, uh, and when that second, third wave comes, which it almost inevitably will. Screw not to be too philosophical about it, but did you learn something about yourself in this crisis, or around, or about others around you during the crisis? Look, um, I'm old enough to probably know myself pretty well, and uh, you know, certainly from some a lot of my uh, my senior team, particularly my task force team, you know, they 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 stood up and and you know, I'm I'm not good at everything. Uh, that's for sure, and uh, I, I, I know what I'm good at. I, I generally accept I'm not going to change dramatically after you know a, a long time in business. And, and everyone has a role to play. And, and uh, my 
people, you know, really did play an important role in that. You know, whether the it was the leisure and corporate CEOs who have had a great uh, had a, a very important part in this, or the, you know, our CFO or our regional MDs who who have to operationally run the regions. Everyone did their job, and you know, I think it really highlighted to me that. We have a good mix and of very capable people, and uh, who, by doing their job, uh, made everything a lot easier, and certainly a lot easier for me. How much different will Flight Centre look in a year's time? It will be smaller, not as many shops, more online business, slimmer profit margins. Well, look, it it will be smaller now. A year's time, we're probably just getting really. Back into the uh, some serious international travel. Oh, we'll say travel. a year, eighteen months. Yeah. Okay, and so international travel will be coming back. Uh, domestic will be well and truly back. We'll, we'll probably be small. I, I would suggest about seventy percent of our pre-COVID size, um, and that will certainly that'll be in um, people numbers. Probably in actual shop numbers. Um, probably less than that. You know, perhaps sixty percent. With our corporate business, I think we'll be as as the corporates come back. I think we'll probably have our market. We'll probably be growing our market share in that because um, you know we're pretty prepared. We've been talking to our customers all along. We've been winning business during this crisis. So, um, and, and I think our, our we believe we'll get probably to about a break even by Christmas. But we obviously, it's too early to say, you know, when you, when you consider we still have relatively little income. Uh, so it does depend on quite a few things happening. Yeah. But we'd like, we'd like to think that by Christmas we'll be getting to break even. And, um, within 18 months or so, uh, certainly turning a, a reasonable profit, uh, as a smaller and more efficient business. Screw Turner, could you ever have imagined you'd go through this back when you started Flight Centre in the early 80s when the fare market, the airfare market was deregulated and you were fast out of the blocks with discount airfares and travel for Australian consumers really never looked back? Yeah, well, that seems like a lifetime ago. Maybe it wasn't really a lifetime ago. But look, one of the things, and I've often thought, you know, Setting up and running Top Deck uh, in the seventies, what we went through then, and and with some serious cash flow issues in the late seventies, early eighties in Top Deck, you know, it, it's it's one of those things you get just get used to. I don't, I don't think I could run Top Deck now because it's uh, it's something for a relatively young person. You know, running old double decker buses around Europe and. Uh, through to Kathmandu and North Africa and that sort of thing. Well, you can't yeah. literally go to Kathmandu anymore, really, can you? That was the fabulous part of that, what, 60s and 70s. You started in 73 doing that mm. as a 23-year-old. Is that true? Yeah, well, our first overland in the double-deckers was 75, which uh, Bill James and I took. But, yeah, I, I think I think I, I was 24 when we started Top Deck in 73. And, um, you know, it, so I think um, – that sort of grounding in business meant that it couldn't get too much harder because we would have um, uh, we would have breakdowns mm. in London. You'd get a call at three o'clock in the morning from Afghanistan uh, where they needed a new engine flown. Oh, that sort of thing. Gosh. So it prepared 
retail travel uh, in the 80s uh, seemed pretty easy compared yeah. to that. And, uh, and then the other challenges that you mentioned before, you know, the uh, the various Gulf Wars and 9-11 and, um, and the GFC, yeah, this is by far the worst from a business point of view, definitely from but I guess you just accept in business that's that's the way that's what happens, and you know particularly this is really unpredictable and unforeseeable from our point of view. But maybe we should have. I don't know. In part two of my interview with Flight Centre's Graham Turner next week, he talks of his almost accidental entry into being an entrepreneur when he gave up being a trained veterinary surgeon to start up cheap double-decker bus tours through Europe to Afghanistan and Kathmandu while he was travelling with mates in London. And the reason? Well, mainly to have fun. Join me next week on Build It Thou Come for more of entrepreneur Graham Turner's fantastic journey and the lessons he's learned along the way.